Lord, open my lips that my mouth may proclaim your praise. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. So I start looking at these lections um, at the beginning of the week after I've kind of gotten through the Sunday and start looking at it. And uh, I take this or something that I print out and start underlining. I don't know if you can see from here, but there's an awful lot of underlining and circles and arrows. And, and so I was really, I wasn't too sure there was so much meat in the Romans and then um, there's so much in the gospel. So we'll, we'll, we're looking at the gospel. We'll, we'll look a little bit at Romans also. But if you were to look at your, um, at your pamphlet, at your bulletin insert, and look at Matthew, and if you were looking in particular for repetitions or phrases that are repeated, you will find this. The kingdom of heaven is like. 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 The kingdom of heaven is like five times in that one short passage. We have five parables about the kingdom of heaven. It is what Jesus came to proclaim and to embody and to leave behind. It's how he starts off his ministry in the very first chapter of Mark. Repent and believe the good news, for the kingdom of God has come near. It's what John the Baptist, who lays the ground for Messiah Jesus, says also, the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. Same thing, exactly the same thing. It's just Matthew uses the word heaven as God's place, as where God rules, where he reigns, where his ways rule. So it's not just kind of a, a kingdom. We think of kingdoms geographically. We look at the globe and we think, okay, uh, well, I do. Um, this is the kingdom of England. And then, uh, you know, this is the kingdom of Saudi Arabia or whatever. Um, other, other people might think of it differently. But anyway, it's not that kind of kingdom. It's, it's the realm of God. It's God's place. It's where he is. And it's not far away. It's not out there. It's not somewhere where we can't reach. It's actually, we were looking at the Apostles' Creed, and N.T. Wright was putting it this way, it's the overlapping realm with our earth, with our universe, with that which is physical. It's the overlapping realm. And with Jesus' incarnation, because it's God's place, it's where God dwells, it's where his ways are the norm, and because Jesus is God incarnate, Heaven comes to earth. The, the kingdom of heaven intersects into the kingdom of this earth with the incarnation because God brings his realm with him when he becomes incarnate of a virgin Mary, both fully human and fully man. And he comes with the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven has come near. But it didn't go away with him when he died, resurrected, and ascended. No, he's left it. 
it's still here. It's still present because he sent his Holy Spirit, divinity itself, to come and dwell within our physical mortal temples. And so the kingdom of heaven is still now not just overlapping, but at points intersecting all of the earth. Where God's people are, where God resides in their hearts, so also is his realm, are his ways. There will be a time when those two overlapping realms will become one. That's the promise of scripture. That's the revelation of the Bible. That's the end of the Bible. It's the fullness of time. It's when Christ comes and returns and brings a new heaven and a new earth knit together so there is no longer any separation whatsoever. God dwells with his people and there is no more evil, no more suffering, just life everlasting. That's the promise. But for this time, for the now, there are still places, pinpricks of the kingdom of heaven bursting into the kingdom of darkness. If you have a Bible at home that has any kind of a commentary or an introduction to it, if you look at that, you will find that Matthew's Gospel is, has five discourses in it. That it's kind of, it, it's wrapped around those five discourses of Jesus. The first one is the Sermon on the Mount. That's Discipleship 101, if you like. It's when he starts to teach his disciples how they're to be kingdom of heaven people, how they are to have the kingdom of heaven grow in themselves, how they are to fully become kingdom of heaven disciples. It's radical discipleship from the inside out, loving your enemies, being peacemakers, being merciful, letting go of anger, giving to the needy, not criticizing others, being generous in giving for the work of the kingdom. And it goes on. The second discourse... The second discourse of Jesus is called the mission mandate. We looked at that a few Sundays ago. It's when Jesus trains the disciples up as to what they're supposed to do when they go out, (coughs) how they're supposed to go and heal in his name and preach the good news. And this is the third discourse that we get to today. Actually, we've already kind of dived into this a couple of Sundays ago, because it's all of chapter 13 in Matthew is this parable discourse. It's one parable after another about the kingdom of heaven. We started off with the parable to the crowds about the four soils. How does the kingdom get seeded? How does it get planted? How does it grow? And then last week we were looking at the weeds and the wheat, how the kingdom of heaven continues on until the end of the age where weeds and wheat are mixed in amongst each other. And this week we get to these pow, 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 five parables, one after the other, and these are spoken to the disciples. 
And so we look at uh, how Jesus is describing here what the kingdom of heaven is like. First of all, it's like a mustard seed. Uh, Some of you might have remembered in your classes or your Sunday school classes, your Sunday school teacher may be bringing in a really, really tiny seed, uh, a mustard seed. And if you put it in the soil, um, it's, it's kind of completely enveloped in the soil. And yet this grows into the biggest bush, a big tree, a tree big enough for birds to make their nests in there. So what he's saying is is that the kingdom of heaven, although at the present age, seems to be hidden, it is actually going to be huge. It's actually going to envelop the whole universe. The kingdom of heaven, what it will be, is great. Its current status is not so, but that belies what will be. It will be great. He says the kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman puts into the bread. Some of you might have made bread. We we went through a period of doing that, except that we were eating way too much, so the bread maker went away, which I think it made it into the rummage sale a few years ago. But you'll know that when you're making bread, you've got to put yeast in there. It's the fermenting agent. Otherwise, the bread's just flat. It doesn't rise. Uh, But it doesn't need an awful lot of yeast. Otherwise, you've got it kind of coming out all over the place. You just need a little tiny bit of yeast to ferment the whole dough. But with that little tiny bit, the dough rises and gets really big. Well, it's another image for the kingdom of heaven. See, what they were expecting in Israel was for Messiah to come with an army uh, to bring in and take violently back Israel so that it would be again in the glory days of the kingdom under King David when all of the surrounding nations had been conquered, where peace reigned, uh, although there were skirmishes on the outside. But it was a glorious time and they were expecting it to happen overnight. They were expecting it to happen through violence and through storm. But this is a different kingdom. It only needs a small amount for it to go throughout the whole dough. Look, he started one person, Jesus, with 12 disciples and it spread out. Look how far it has gone throughout the whole earth. How far it has expanded with just a small first number. It's not going to come in now with that kind of power and violence and overthrow. It says it's like hidden treasure. Now, back in the day, uh, when you didn't have a bank, um, you would go and hide your treasure in the field if you knew marauders were coming. You might tell some in your family where it was. Um, And then again, you might not. So that if you were killed in those skirmishes, it would be hidden until somebody happened to stumble upon it. As I was leaving the chapel service, Susie Pelham came up to me and she said, that so resonated. I had an aunt who did that. She put uh, all of her treasure in little tin cans and and dug holes and put it all through the back garden so that when she died, they took a backhoe to to find out where all the treasure was. (laughs) 
Oh, that's a really good image. I'll use that at the 10.30. <laughs> but it, this is the hidden treasure. It's, he's not actually looking for it. Do you notice that? In this, in this instant, in this parable, he stumbles upon it. But his reaction is amazing. He immediately recognizes its worth. So that nothing else compares to the worth of this treasure. So he sells everything and buys the field. It's not that he wants the whole field. It's just the treasure. The treasure is so exquisite. The treasure is so, is, is so great that nothing else compares with it. He'll let go of everything else that he possesses so that he can gain this treasure. Such is the kingdom of heaven. And then it's like a pearl of great price. Now, in this case, the merchant's looking for it. He's gone out looking for the pearl, the perfect pearl, the pearl of great price. And when he finds it, he immediately recognizes it. He recognizes its full worth, its full value. And he also lets go of all of his other money, all of his other possessions, all of his other power. Whatever he has, this is more important. It's more important than all of those things. To gain the kingdom of heaven is of paramount importance. There is nothing more important than that. It's why Paul would say in Philippians, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. Compare that to the rich young ruler. He says, I've done this. I've done this. I've done that. I've done the other. And Jesus says, there's one thing missing. Give up all that you have and follow me. And he goes away because he has such great wealth. It's not a parable about wealth. It's a parable about the things that bind us that will not allow us to fully walk into the kingdom of heaven, to give it all that we have, to make it the greatest treasure that we can ever own. See, just as the Jews wanted the overthrow of Rome and they wanted the kingdom of Israel back again, at the end of a week like this, at the end of two weeks like this, I'm going to come, Lord, now. Come with the angel armies. But his timing is not our timing. I read words like, we are more than conquerors. And I look at all of the Christians who have had to leave Mosul, ancient Nineveh. They've been there since the time uh, the gospel reached them in Iraq. Young girls are being tackled, being circumcised in the streets. Christians are being persecuted in North Africa. It's like one thing after another these last few weeks. And I read, we are more than conquerors. But you know, we've got to place ourselves where Paul was at this time. 
He'd been in jail. He'd been shipwrecked. He'd been naked. He'd been hungry. He'd been persecuted. He'd been stoned. He'd had to escape by a basket for his very life. All of these things had happened to him, and yet he could say this, because this is the context in which he says it. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will hardship or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? No. In all these things, these things will happen. These things are happening. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, we're participants in a clandestine kingdom. We're the resistance workers in a kingdom that is spreading, that is small but will grow. It only needs a few of us to spread the message. It's underground, and yet we know what it will be because we have the promise that he will return and he will make all things new. So in the middle of terrible persecution, terrible pain, Paul kept his eyes straight ahead on the prize that he knew was his and ours. He lived fully in the present, in the darkness of the present, being the change agent, being the resistance worker, bringing light, bringing the message of the gospel into the darkness. He could withstand all things because he had his eyes on the final prize. But he was working for the world as it was at the present. And his biggest weapon, and he says this in Romans, was prayer. When he didn't know how to pray, the Spirit prayed through him with sighs too deep. It's our weapon as well. Our weapon's not the sword. It's not violence. Our weapon is prayer. It's what God has given his church and it's so much more powerful than the sword. It's so much more powerful than anything that could ever come against it because our prayers somehow or other release God's power into the world, his kingdom power into the world. And he's invited us to be a people at prayer. Paul knew the hope. He knew the promise and he stood on it. As I was reading this, I was reminded when I was young, um, you know, we had uh, black and white TV back in the day in the UK. It was a long time before we had color. 
And, uh, you know, for England, it was still, you know, we were still coming out from the war when I was really young. It was still, it was still that era so that the, the kind of the cloud of what that might have been was still over us and it probably didn't help that there were a lot of war movies that were shown on TV as well so to a young and imaginative mind um, it really grasped me there was one in particular called She Carved Her Name With Pride it's about a woman called Violette Zabo who uh, was English, married to an Englishman, but who spoke French flawlessly without any kind of an English accent. And so she was sent over to help with the French resistance and um, eventually lost her life to the Gestapo. Uh, Very close to the end of the war, she was shot for her resistance work over there. And because there was still that this could happen again, this kind of evil could happen again, in my romantic whatever age I was, I thought, I need to learn French. I need to learn French so that I can actually speak French without an English accent. And actually, that was my motivation for learning French and for actually going to France, working in France, and not associating with any English people or American people so that I would have a French accent. Because there was maybe resistance work to be done. Actually, God found another resistance work for me to do. And for all of us to do. Because we're all his resistance warriors. We're all underground clandestine warriors in the kingdom of heaven. A historian put it this way about World War II. He said, on the surface, all appeared horrifically hopeless, but hidden among the terrorized were those who dared to resist. Someone else said that courage is fear that has said its prayers. Courage is fear that has said its prayers. Admiral James Stockdale was uh, a POW. He was in a prisoner of war camp in Vietnam for eight years. And you've heard stories and seen movies about just how awful that was. And he was interviewed when he came out. And he was asked, how was it that he was able to survive? And he said this, I never lost faith in the end of the story. I never lost faith in the end of the story. I never doubted not only that I would get out, but also that I would prevail in the end and that the experience would be a defining event in my life, which in retrospect, I would not trade. See, we're never to lose sight of the end of the story. The end of our story is the beginning of the ongoing story of God in a new heaven and a new earth. But we're to be like Paul. We're to continue to dare to resist the kingdom of darkness 
we have that same hope as Paul. And that's the promise of the fifth parable. For at the end of the age, there will be a dragnet. It's one of these huge nets that's about 25 foot high in the middle and very, very long. And it's just pulled through the ocean. And with it, all of the fish are gathered in. And the promise is that the evil will be dealt with. And the righteous will live with God forever. So how are we to be those clandestine resistance agents of God's kingdom, of the kingdom of heaven? Well, first of all, we've got to let it grow within us. We've got to allow the Holy Spirit to do his work of transformation. We've got to go back to the Sermon on the Mount and say, how are we to be kingdom people? What are we supposed to be to be kingdom people so that we truly are his resistance agents into the world because we're reflecting him? And the second thing that we're to do is to be constant at prayer because that's our weapon. We're to pray over Mosul. We're to pray over the Christians. We're to pray over this nation. We're to pray over every single place where God's children are being slaughtered and tortured because our prayer releases God's power. And you have to believe that. You have to trust that and use that weapon. So my invitation is, for us all to be God's resistance workers in the kingdom of heaven world to bring it to pass. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.